Okay, so 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, if you're not familiar with it, um, I would argue that it contains one of the most tense exchanges in all of Scripture. And it's the conversation between the prophet Nathan and King David. So I want to read just a little bit of this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Church, I would argue that that none of us naturally want to confess our sin. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to agree with me, okay? I I don't think any of us naturally want to confess our sin. There's something within us that recoils at the thought of bringing into the light the things that we do in the dark. And I think the reason for that is, is simple. We're we're ashamed of those things. Right? There are things, just like King David, that, that we know we've done that are wrong. David didn't want to confess his sin. And quite often, nor do we. He wanted to hide it. He, he tried to cover it up. He only confessed what he had done after Nathan lovingly confronted him. So it took a wise prophet with a provoking illustration to convince King David that he needed to walk in the light. And I I wonder this morning, and I wondered this week as I was preparing this sermon, friend, what's it going to take for you to do the same thing? What, What will motivate you What will push you to follow his example and and bring your darkest secrets into the light? In other words, what's going to motivate you to be honest about your sin? To stop hiding, to stop running, to stop excusing or ignoring or minimizing the seriousness and significance of the things that you're doing or you have done that God says are wrong. What, What is going to push you, enable you to do that, given many of us don't have prophets like Nathan showing up at our door. Would that we did. But given we often don't, 
what is going to enable us to walk in the light? Well, I would argue that there's only one thing powerful enough to do that. There's only one motivation strong enough to lead you out of the dark and into the light. And I'm not just talking about at one point in your life, but every single day. Every single day, and it's called the gospel. Okay? The gospel enables us to be honest about our sin because the gospel assures us that God is faithful to deliver us from our sin. That's the answer to the question. No other medicine is strong enough. Okay, so think of it this way. Nothing less than the delightfully unexpected news that the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die, is strong enough to bring us out of the shadows in a relationship with God and in our relationships with each other. The gospel enables us to be honest about our sin because the gospel assures us that God is willing and able to deliver us from our sin. That is the big idea in 1 John 1. Okay, specifically in verses 8 through 10, all right? And, and John drives that big idea home that, that the gospel enables us to be honest about our sin because the gospel assures us that God's faithful to deliver us from our sin. That's the big idea. And John drives that home by making two contrasting points, okay? The first is a warning. The second is a comfort. But it's actually more like a warning sandwich with comfort in the middle, okay? So first he warns us in verses 8 and 10 that the path of denial leads to death. Okay, that's the warning. And then he comforts us in verse 9 that the path of confession brings healing. Those are the two points that John makes. But those two points are designed to drive home this one big idea that the gospel enables us to be honest about our sin because it assures us that God is faithful to deliver us from our sin. Okay? So let's begin with point one. This warning that sandwiches the beginning and the end. The path of denial leads to death. Look at verse eight. What does John say in verse eight? If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Few people would deny, some do, but few people would deny that they've made some mistakes in life. If you go up to the average person on the street, any person at your work, hey, have you made some mistakes in life? Most people typically are going to say, well, 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 yeah, I mean, who... Who hasn't? Most of us live with a measure of regret over at least some of our past actions and choices. But church, here's the problem. That's not what the Bible means when it's talking about sin. Okay? Sin isn't a mistake. Sin isn't a regret. Sin sin isn't just something that we do or indulge in from time to time. Sin, according to scripture, is who we are. Okay, Since, since the fall of Adam and Eve, every one of us is born into this world with an innate desire to rebel against our creator. Yes, that's offensive, to our pride at least. We, we are not intrinsically good. We're created in the image of God, but that image has been corrupted to the core. No part of us, in other words, is unstained or uncorrupted by sin. And apart from divine intervention, the Bible has one word to describe our spiritual identity. And it's not flattering. Okay, it's not. Who are we? Apart from divine intervention, we're sinners. We're sinners. Jesus said so. Don't go pitting nice Jesus against preachers who rail on and on about sin. Jesus says a lot about sin. In fact, in Luke 5, he he, he actually says, this is your identity apart from me, okay? Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? Right? 
So so in other words, the the gospel doesn't begin with a word of comfort. It begins with a devastating word of critique. What's the word of critique? You're a sinner. And you need a Savior who can deliver you from your sin. That's where the gospel begins. In other words, poverty is not your greatest problem. Your your physical illness that, that you or the people around you are feeling or suffering from right now is not your greatest problem. Okay, stress at work or conflict with your spouse or trouble with your kids is not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is that you're a sinner and you need a savior. You won't find that on the front cover of many magazines. But it's true. And I think that, that many of us would acknowledge as much. You know, I hear you guys, amen, that's right. It's kind of a funny thing to amen in some ways. Because it's, it's, it's a devastating critique. But, but many of us would acknowledge as much if, if we were pressed on a theological exam, right? So, true or false? Get the teacher in me out here, okay? True or false? We have no sin. False, right? False. We believe that, at least on a theoretical level, many of us in here. But friends, I think all too often our our lives tell a different story. And what I mean by that is that there are a lot of ways that you and I, yes, I'm including myself here, we functionally deny that we have sin. In other words, we dare not read the beginning of verse 8. If we say we have no sin... And think of all the people out there who believe that. Who's he writing to? 1 John 5.13. To those who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, we're at risk of saying we have no sin. And I think that's true because there are all kinds of ways we functionally do that. So, So what do I mean by that? Okay, let me just give you some examples. First, how do we functionally say we have not sinned? First, We ignore or overlook the presence of sin by failing to live an examined life. As long as as no one's getting hurt or, or your spouse or your kids aren't getting upset, we never stop to pray with Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and and know my thoughts and and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'd say it this way, if, if you're not regularly, regularly experiencing the gift of conviction, where the, where the Holy Spirit awakens your mind to, to recognize specific instances or patterns of sin in your life, okay, particularly things in your thoughts, your desires, that no one else but you and the Lord could possibly know about. If you're not regularly experiencing conviction there, Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And most likely what's wrong is that you are failing to live an examined life. Okay, now, I am not urging you to embark on a witch hunt of endless introspection. I'm not. I'm urging you to examine your life on a regular basis and ask the Lord to search your heart and mind and then to evaluate your thoughts, your feelings, your actions in the light of God's word. And if you're not sure where to begin and you're thinking, preacher man, how do I live this examined life? Well, we'll turn to Galatians chapter 6 this week. Read the fruit of the Spirit there. Read it again. Read it again. And as you read it, simply pray, Lord, would you show me one or two areas here where you want to help me grow right now? Okay, if if we're going weeks, months, even years, where another Christian could come up to us and say, brother, sister, how's God helping you repent of sin, grow in godliness right now? Uh, trust him? <laughs> you, you know, we don't know what to say. If, if there's not a ready answer on your tongue, friend, take heed. 
It very well could be because you're not living an examined life. I think that's the first way that we functionally deny we have sin. We, we ignore or overlook the presence of sin. Here, here's the second way. We do the same thing whenever we justify or minimize our sin. And I think this is particularly easy to do in the context of close relationships. So let me give you an illustration here. All right, Your spouse comes to you and says, hey, it seemed like you got angry with the kids tonight. I did not get angry at the kids tonight. Did you see the way they were treating me? Or maybe your wife says, hey, I'm concerned we don't really get time to talk. You're not home much. When you are home, your brain is still at work. I think it's affecting your ability to love our family the way God wants you to. Do you have any idea the kind of pressure that I'm under at the office right now? Okay, let's review. If we're going to pay these bills, then I have to work, okay? And by the way, I'm obviously sitting right here with you right now, right? We're talking, so if there's something you want to talk about, spit it out, and we'll have the conversation. I won't ask you if you've done that. (laughs) What are we doing? Well, we're not doing something that's limited to marriage or family. Okay? Justifying or minimizing our sin, we do that in any season of life. Whenever we, we respond to a pattern of sin or temptation with statements like, well, I'm just a red-blooded male, I'm a guy, it's what guys do, Pe- people need to just get over it. Or, or, or we say, I'm not the only one that's doing it. I mean, all kinds of people do that. It, 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 here's the challenge. Who is typically the last person to recognize that I'm justifying or minimizing my sin? Yeah, you should be pointing your fingers at me right now. Right? Thank you, Connie. Yeah, me, right? Me. I'm the last person to recognize that. So so here's a warning to the wise. If someone comes up to you and says, I can't help but wonder if you're justifying or minimizing your sin. Now, by the way, they don't even have to say it that nicely, okay? If they say that, here's what you need to do, friend. Don't speak. Listen. Listen, okay? Close your mouth and listen to what they have to say. And if necessary, when they're done talking, ask for a couple days to just think about what they've said. And pray about the way they're challenging you. Because typically, we're the last person to recognize that we're actually justifying or minimizing our sin. It's the nature of the beast. Ignoring or overlooking sin, this is what John's getting at, inevitably leads to justifying or minimizing our sin. Okay, And if you justify or minimize your sin then eventually, what do you wind up doing? You wind up denying it where your heart is hardened and you don't believe you're sinning at all. Okay, but the warning in Hebrews 3 is real. Listen to this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, It's really easy to functionally deny that we have sin. I've just given you a couple examples. Now, now, whenever we functionally deny that we have sin, what are we doing? What are we doing? We've just talked about how we do that, but what are we actually doing when we do that? What, what's happening? Well, John says three things are happening. Okay, First, he says in verse 8, look there with me. If we say we have no sin, we can do that functionally, even if theoretically we would never say that. What's happening? First, we're deceiving ourselves. Okay, notice he doesn't say 
we're being deceived. As if sin sort of grabbed the good me and manipulated it into believing a lie. No, we, we deceive ourselves. We're culpable. You know, I think this illustration is helpful. It's whenever we overlook or deny or, or justify our sin, it's like we look into a carnival mirror. You ever seen those mirrors at the fair? They look funny. You look even funnier in them. But, but you look into that carnival mirror, and what, what do you see? Well, you see like you have a huge head and really short legs. You know? And, and overlooking, justifying, or denying our sin is like looking in that carnival mirror and walking away and thinking, wow, I have a really big head and really short legs. That's amazing. No, no you don't. You're deceived. Okay, if, if you believe that, you're deceived. But, but we do that when we functionally say we, we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. That, but that's not the only thing we do. Look at, look at what he says next. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, what, do we, what are we also doing? We're calling God a liar. You know, as if deceiving ourselves, we're not sobering enough. Okay, so, so how do we do this? How do we call God a liar when we functionally deny that we have sin? Well, when the word of God says something's wrong, okay, like hoarding your wealth or sex outside of marriage, and we say it's okay. It's not wrong. It's okay. And, and we do it anyway. We are blatantly denying the truthfulness of God. Okay, that's sobering. We're, we're claiming as creatures a privilege that rightly belongs to the creator. Namely, to declare and decide what is true and what is false and what is right and what is wrong. That, that's God's prerogative as the creator, not ours. And we're also calling God a liar. Whenever, whenever we functionally deny that we have sinned, we're calling God a liar in the sense that what God says about the death of Christ, namely, that we need it, is not true. So think about this. You know, Jesus says, Matthew, what does he say to me? Matthew, you're a sinner, and because you're a sinner, I'm going to die so that you can live. Okay, whenever I functionally say, I have no sin, what am I saying back to Jesus? No, I'm not. I don't need that. I'm telling a lie about the necessity and value of the blood of Christ. When we functionally say we have no sin, we're, we're proclaiming that what God says about the necessity of the suffering of Christ is not true, and we're making a mockery of his death. So we deceive ourselves, we call God a liar, and then lastly, look at verse, really verse 8 and 10 here. To deny our sin is to live in darkness. What does John say in verse 8? The truth is not in us, or in verse 10, his word is not in us. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about the word of salvation, right? The truth of the gospel. He's warning us that you can't say, I have no sin, functionally, and call yourself a Christian. Okay, that, that's why the path of denial is so deadly. To functionally deny your sin is to separate yourself from the blood of Christ. Okay, such that there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin. If there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin, where does that leave you? That leaves you having to pay personally the penalty for your sin. What's that penalty? It's, it's death, right? So we need to heed the warning. Proverbs 28, Solomon says it so well. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Memorize this, friend. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Okay, remember I said John makes two points. The first, a warning. What's the warning? The path of denial is deadly. Okay, but what's the comfort? What's the promise? That the path of confession, point number two, brings healing. The path of confession brings healing. So if the path of denial leads to death, the path of confession leads to healing. So look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Okay, this verse is why I had to split this text into two sermons. 
because there is so much good news here. All right, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so think about it. What's the opposite of functionally denying or minimizing your sin? What's the opposite of that? Well, it's owning up to it, right? It's, it's bringing it into the light. And instead of saying, staying silent, we go public. That's not natural. <laughs> not natural. Why not? Well, because we live in a world where image management is king. Right? Image management is king. It's, it's about your resume or your website or your social media presence or your wardrobe. It's about getting past your weaknesses and, and doubling down on your strengths. It's about getting rid of all the negativity and, and negative thoughts and believing in yourself. We, we breathe that all day. But that's not the way of the cross. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel challenges us to not manage the image of our sin, but to be honest about our sin. To, to throw it out there, to, to bring it into the light. Why does the gospel challenge us to do that? Because the gospel also enables us and assures us that God's faithful to deliver us from our sin. But, but there will be no deliverance. Deliverance will never happen unless we're willing to bring our darkest secrets into the light and be honest about who we really are and where we really need God's deliverance. Okay, in other words, confession isn't optional. It's required. It's not optional, it's required. So, so what does a biblical confession look like when John says, if we confess our sin, let's not read our present assumptions into that. What, what does a biblical confession look like? Well, I, I could give a whole sermon series on this, okay? But, but I'm going to give you, according to scripture, at least three marks of a genuine confession. Okay, so when John says, if we confess our sin, what, what does he mean by confess our sin? Well, first, a confession is God word. It's Godward, okay? It recognizes, a biblical confession recognizes that no matter how our sin has hurt other people around us, even people we really care for, our sin is first and foremost always against the Lord. Okay, Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned. When did David say that? right after Nathan came to him. How many other people had he sinned against? Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, all of Israel. I mean, just a huge list, but what does he say? Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Why does David say that? Why, why does a genuine confession have to be Godward? When so often the sin that we're confessing, or ought to confess, is against people. What's up with that? Okay, well, the, the connection is that the way we relate to everyone around us is simply a reflection of the way that we relate to God. Right? So, so in other words, every, every horizontal sin of omission or commission in our relationships with other people always reflects a prior prior to the fact, prior to that moment, vertical sin of omission or commission in our relationship with God. You cannot separate the way you relate to the people around you from the way you relate to God. So I'll give you, give you another example, okay? Back to my family. If I yell at my kids, have I sinned against them? Thank you, said some parents. Yes, I've sinned against them, right? You bet. But why... Why didn't I yell at them? Well, because they... I know. Why? Well, nine times out of ten, it's because in that moment, what did I do? 
I refuse to believe that God in this moment is still sovereign, loving, and wise. Who's in charge? God's not. I don't believe that. My kids are. And they are making a royal hash of things. Therefore, because they are out of control and God is not in control, I need to exercise control by yelling, whatever I got to do to get this situation under control because you're certainly not in control. Right? That's, that's why we do that. There's a connection. I, I sinned first in my relationship with God by essentially calling him a liar. Lord, you are not who you say you are. You are not in control right now. And as a result of that, I then sinned against my kids. The, the greatest damage, but please hear this, friend. The greatest damage sin does in our lives is never in our relationships with people. It's always in our relationship with God. That's where the greatest damage happens. And that's, that's the forgiveness, God's forgiveness that we need the most. As the prophet Isaiah warns us, absent confession, our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God. And our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not hear. Isaiah 59.1. Okay, it, it doesn't matter if the people around you think you've sinned or not, because it's not ultimately to the people around you that you are accountable, okay? You're accountable to God. And that's why confession, genuine confession, is first and foremost Godward. Okay, it's Godward. We're accountable to God. Second, it's Godward. Second, it's transparent. Okay, when John says, if we confess our sins... There's not an asterisk at the end of sins. If you follow it down, it doesn't say, keep in mind there's a hierarchy where you get to pick to confess some things and hide others. No, no, it doesn't say that, right? So, you know, sometimes we play games like that, don't we? We, we play these games. We, we try to assuage our guilty conscience by admitting part of what we've done but holding back the rest. Or, or this, is, this is really tempting, right? We confess something over here, but we do that so we don't feel so bad about the thing we're really not confessing but should over here. We, we, we play these games. But, but a biblical confession is transparent. It's transparent. It doesn't stop with part of the truth. It tells the whole truth. It doesn't, Proverbs 28, conceal any transgression. Or Psalm 32, it doesn't cover any iniquity. It brings every sin we're aware of into the light. So it's Godward, it's transparent. Third, genuine confession is earnest. It's earnest. What do we mean by that? Well, there's a form of confession that consists of nothing more then a verbal assent, a, a checkbox, if you would, yes, I did what was wrong. Yes, I will likely do it again. Yes, I will admit it, but I don't really care about it. Okay? That's not the overflow of a penitent heart that is seeking to turn away from iniquity and toward righteousness. That, that's not an earnest confession. An earnest confession is characterized by godly sorrow and a sincere commitment to turn away from sin and toward righteousness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, for see what earnestness this godly grief is produced in you, but also what, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what, what zeal. It's earnest. It's from the heart. It's not just admitting the obvious under pressure. It comes from the conviction of the Spirit. But let me warn you, friend. Let me warn you that no confession this side of heaven will be perfect. It won't. And we need to take great care, especially in our closest friendships where we're sinned against and it hurts the most, that we don't turn other people's confessions into a work of merit. What do I mean by that? Well, the critical question is whether some 
measure, not a perfect measure, some measure of Godward, transparent, earnest confession is present. If so, if some measure of that is present, then God is eager to forgive, and so should we be as well. Why? It doesn't seem good enough. Friend, it's because of the quality of your confession is not what secures the forgiveness of your God. Some of us need to write that down. The quality of our confession is not what secures the forgiveness of our God. It's the unchangeable mercy of the Father. Should we be asking ourselves and one another, is my confession Godward and transparent and earnest? Well, yes. Yes, if we confess our sins, confession matters. But don't turn that into a work of merit. I love how John Calvin says, such a good pastor. Listen, forgiveness of sins can never come to anyone without repentance. Notice that. Because only those afflicted and wounded by the awareness of sin can sincerely invoke God's mercy. But, but, repentance is not the cause of forgiveness of sins. The sinner does not dwell upon his own compunction or tears, but fixes both eyes upon the Lord's mercy alone. What does that mean? Church, it means that it's not your character that's the source and wellspring of God's forgiveness. It's God's character. It's God's mercy, okay? God is the one who forgives. Micah 7, what, is, what does the prophet say? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. We have to confess our sin. Now, what happens when we confess our sin? Okay, remember, what's John's point? The path of denial leads to death. The path of confession brings healing. We, we've just looked at what, what is this thing called a confession. Now, now how does it bring healing? What, what happens when we confess our sin to the Lord? Two things. Two things. Look back at verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just What's the first thing? To forgive us our sins. Now, few Americans would be shocked by that. Right? Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Of course God's willing to forgive sins. He's he's like a kindly old grandpa who occasionally furrows his brow, but for the most part he chuckles and says, oh, boys will be boys. Come over here, you rascal, and say you're sorry. Of course he forgives sins. Friends, that's not the God with whom we have to do. The the, the real God. The God who's keeping your heart beating right now. Listen to what he says about who he is. Okay? Exodus 34. The Lord. The Lord. God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you realize that the entire rest of the Bible is all about how can those two things be reconciled? How can God be both faithful to forgive a God of steadfast love and mercy and leave no guilt unpunished? The entire rest of the Bible, from Exodus 34 onward, is all about how can those two things go together? That that sounds like a contradiction. How can God forgive iniquity and by no means clear the guilty? 
Well, the answer, friend, is what? It's the cross of Christ, right? Did you notice John doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us our sins because that's what, just what God does. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay, so let's break that down. Why is God faithful to forgive? Well, because he promises in his word, Exodus 34, that he will forgive. And, and what does it mean that he's faithful? He always does what he says it will do. Right? He's faithful to forgive. But, but how is God just to forgive? Well, here's where we get to the heart of the gospel. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Okay, what does that mean? It means that when Jesus died on the cross, he died because in that moment he bore the cumulative, unmitigated wrath of God for all the sin, past, present, and future, of all those who would trust in him as their Savior. He paid your debt, Christian, so that you could go free. And because he's a just God, please hear this, he will never punish the same sin twice. I love how Charles Spurgeon says, payment he will not twice demand. First at the bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. He won't do that. He won't do that. If you sincerely confess your sins, God is not only willing to forgive you, but he would be unjust to refuse. That is what makes grace so scandalous. The very justice of God that once ensured your damnation now ensures your forgiveness and salvation. When you find yourself wondering, how can I know as a Christian that I am forgiven? Do not say, well, I will fix my eyes on the love of God and try to keep the justice of God in the closet. No, you know what you need to do when you are struggling with condemnation? How can I possibly be forgiven? You fix your eyes on the justice of God. Why? Because God will not demand payment for the same sin twice. What would that be? Unjust. It's the justice of God that if you're in Christ that guarantees your forgiveness once and for all. So, so how do we experience that? How do we experience that forgiveness? Well, we receive it once and for all when we, we first respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. So Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead, you who were dead, in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Fearful saint, you need to hear that what God sets aside, he will never pick up again and set on you. You're forgiven once and for all the day you're saved. But at the same time, we experience God's forgiveness anew whenever we bring our sin into the light. Not because we lost it and we have to regain it, but because the Lord mercifully withholds a conscious awareness of his forgiveness as long as we're unwilling to bring our sin into the light. Okay, that, that's what David's getting at in Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you what? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. He, he's speaking of that conscious experience of God's forgiveness. Okay, if, we, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to to forgive us our sins. But that's not the only thing God is faithful and just to do, right? Look back at verse 9. He's also faithful and just to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I love how Robert Yarbrough says this. There are two promises in view here in verse 9. Two promises. First, a debt God remits. And second, a stain God removes. So God expresses his justice 
his righteousness, by bringing our unrighteousness to an end, both in terms of our guilt, that's the debt God remits, and our inward corruption, that's the stain God removes. So think about it. It would be really good news if God just said to you, child, all your sins are forgiven. I know it would be, okay, throw a party, right? Bring in a bouncy house. That, that's, that's great. You can tell I'm a parent. That would be amazing, right? But, but what, where would that leave us if God said, I'll just take your guilt away? Where would that leave us? That would still leave us mired in sin. I mean, the guilt might be gone, but we would be no different on the inside. God doesn't leave you mired in sin, Christian doesn't. The, the gospel enables us to be honest about our sin because it assures us God is faithful to deliver us from our sin, okay? And that the sin God promises to forgive is also the same sin God promises to remove. He cleanses our desires and purifies our hearts. He, he doesn't just wipe out our record so that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Christian, if this morning you are discouraged in the whole myriad of battles against sin that we face in this life, I want you to take heart in those words. Because your father is making a promise to you. What's the promise? That he's put his spirit inside of you. He didn't just forgive your sin. He put his spirit inside of you and his spirit is not sitting on the couch watching the final four. (laughs) What's his spirit doing? He's actively, incessantly, even while you sleep, cleansing us from sin. It's part of that new heart, that new spirit. He's urging, calling, empowering, and strengthening you to walk in the light and obey the Lord. So, as with God's forgiveness... We experiencing we experience his cleansing in two senses. Remember, with God's forgiveness, there was that once for all sense and that ongoing awareness sense. Okay, same thing with cleansing here. There's a there's a moment when you become a Christian, and you're immediately cleansed or sanctified. You're brought into the realm of the holy. You're set apart for God. But our sanctification doesn't stop there. Okay, it continues as God transforms us day by day more into his image. What's going on there? What's God enabling us to live out of our new identity in Christ? He is, as it were, helping us through his spirit to become in our experience in our daily life what he's already declared us to be in Christ. That's the progressive sense. I love how Hebrews 10 holds these both together. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Who? Those who are being sanctified. What's that? The once and for all sense, you are set apart, you are brought into the realm of the holy. But having been brought there, you are now being made holy as God has declared you to be holy. And notice, look at verse 9 again. Look at verse 9. What John says, God is committed to cleansing us from what? From all unrighteousness. Okay, not some unrighteousness, not a majority of your unrighteousness. His his work doesn't stop until you're holy as he is holy. And by the way, the finish line for his work in your life is not the median righteousness of all the people around you. What is it? What's the finish line? God's righteousness. He is not going to stop working in you until he has made you holy as he is holy. That's amazing. That's amazing. He is not only bringing us into the realm of the holy, but he's making us holy. God's the one who cleanses us. But we have a role to play in the process. 
What's our role? Well, it requires a lot more than simply remembering the work that God is doing. And there are Christians today that would argue for that. I believe that's profoundly unwise. Our work requires a lot more than just remembering God's work. We actually have to respond to God's work and cooperate with his work and join in his work by doing things like what? Confessing our sin. That's active. Very active. We have to confess our sin. There will be no forgiveness of sin or cleansing from sin without the confession of sin. So why would I want to go there? Why would I want to go public with my sin? Why would I want to bring out of the dark corners of my life all the stuff I hope no one ever sees or everyone find, ever, anyone ever finds about, starting with my parents? What's well, because the gospel enables you to be honest about your sin, friend. How does it do that? Because it assures you that whatever sin you bring out of the dark, God's going to be faithful to deliver you from that. But you have to bring it out of the dark. You have to. He will help you. He will empower you. He will give you courage and humility. But you have to confess your sin. John does not say in verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does he say? If we confess our sins. It's not optional. It's required. So, stop minimizing your sin. Stop hiding it. Stop justifying it. Bring it into the light. Because your God is eager to forgive you and he's eager to cleanse you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that we don't have to come to church and fake it. We don't have to walk in here and put on our godly face and say, God bless you. God bless you too. But Lord, we can be honest. We can be real. We can be transparent. And Jesus, I pray that you would help every man, woman, child here to see anew today that you are the world's safest place to run when we've sinned. The safest place. You're not just true and right, God. You're safe. And you're good. And you're holy. And I pray, Father, right now as we take a few moments to do what you've told us to do this morning. In the quiet of our own heart and mind, confess our sin to you that you would help us because it's really hard. Please help us. Let's just do that for a few minutes right now, church.